book of Ruth, it's really short, it's lovely, it's quick, it gets to the point, but there's a lot in it at the same time. But it reminds me of like, like an HGT, not HGTV, what's, what's the, um, ladies, what's that channel you guys watch where it's like all like romance movies and Hallmark, yeah, I knew it started with an H. All the guys answered that. <laughs> Come on. We, we, know, we know you guys watch that. So as, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking this would be a great Hallmark movie, right? Because, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read chapter 2 to you in a second. But as, as we read it, you're going to see, like, you know what? Can I just read it, and then I'll give you my thoughts? I think it will be better. All right. So Ruth chapter 2. It says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose, height, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of, of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she, what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, 
You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvests. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. And so in chapter 1, we, we made, it took us three weeks to get through, but essentially what was happening is there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem, right, which means the house of bread. And there was a family of four, right? We've got Elimelech, we've got Naomi, and their two sons. And as they make their way away from Bethlehem, they go to a different foreign city, which is Moab, correct? In Moab, they stay there for 10 years, but in those 10 years, there's a lot of tragedy within this family. Uh, the sons get married, right? But eventually, the father dies, and then the two sons die. So now Naomi, who's the mother and the wife of these gentlemen, is now left alone with the daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, right? And so there's a lot of tragedy. I mean, Naomi is going through tragedy of her sons dying and her father dying or her husband dying, um, as well as uh, the the daughter-in-laws whose husbands had just passed. Um, so Ruth is a part of that. She's she's gone through some hardship, right? The same way that Naomi has gone through. And we're going to see a little bit of contrast between Naomi and Ruth and, and how this is handled. Um, but eventually, what they find out is after all this transpires is that the famine has been lifted, right? That there actually is bread in the house of bread now. So Naomi's like, I'm going to make my way back to my hometown of Bethlehem, right? And she tells her daughter-in-laws, well, you need to stay here with your people, right? I have nothing else to offer you because I I don't have any more sons. There's no one I can give to you as a husband. So stay here with your people, with your gods, and find a husband, right? Orpah's like, yeah, sweet, I'm down for that. She stays, and Naomi says in this beautiful, you know, two sentences or, or two verses in, in verse 16 and 17, basically, wherever you go, I'll go. I'll die where you die, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to leave you, okay? That's, that's the sentiment that she gives and the statement that she gives. And so uh, Naomi's like, well, okay. I mean, I can't, can't stop you, so you're going to come with me. So they make their way to uh, Bethlehem, and it says at the end of verse 22 that they came at the beginning of barley harvest, and what's interesting about that is that it's, it's perfect timing. It's perfect timing. Like, like God's timing is always perfect. If that's just a little nugget that you can remember from tonight, is that your timing is not always perfect. It's not always good. It's not always the right time, right? We, we think that, God, you should do it at this time, in this way, and we forget that he's all-knowing, he's sovereign, He's the creator of all things. Like, he knows exactly what's needed for us, right? It's, it's in our best interest to submit to that. And so this is good timing because of everything that's about to transpire, right? The fact that she is going to go glean from the fields, and the fields, as we're going to see, it just so happens to be Boaz's, right? And so this perfect timing allows for this to happen. And it's not by circumstance. It's not by happenstance. It's not an accident, right? This is all like God-ordained, and we'll talk about that a little bit and how there's a proverb that speaks to this as well. And so we're going to see that there's going to be a glimmer of hope for this family, right? They've gone through just immense tragedy in chapter 1, right? And I think part of it was their own doing, right? Part of it, as we talked about, was them leaving the presence of God, going to a foreign land, right? Like taking things into their own hands, instead of allowing 
God to work and trust in him in that process. And so part of it was, was their responsibility, but also part of it was out of their hands. God had a plan, right? And he works everything together for what? Our good, right? To those who are called, the called, and those who love him. And so we're going to see that this is going to be both Naomi and Ruth. And so there's going to be a glimmer of hope for the family. We're going to see this starting to happen in chapter two, and I'll explain in a second why I think this kind of plays out like a Hallmark movie. Um, but at, we're, what we're also going to see is not only is there a glimmer of hope for this family, but for the entire human race, for all of us. Because this isn't just some wonderful, you know, cheesy romance that we're reading about, right? Like, it's in God's word. So it, it has to mean something beyond just this wonderful romance. No, it, it speaks deeper to the fact of Jesus Christ, right? Everything we see in Scripture always points to the Messiah. It always points to the Savior. It always points to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, right? And so even though Jesus isn't mentioned in the book of Ruth, it alludes to him. It points to him. It's a picture of him. And so we're going to see with Boaz, even though he's a real literal man, he's going to be a picture and a type of Jesus, right? Because he is, as we saw in chapter 2, that he is a kinsman to who? Naomi, right? And one of the laws was that if a man died and left a widow, well, the brother was supposed to take that widow as a wife, right? Go into her and conceive a child, right? And the point of that being what? To be weird? No, right? It was to keep the family name going. It was, it, there was an importance to the lineage, to, to family, to, to the tradition of family. And so that's what God ordained. And we're going to see that this kinsman is going to fit that perfect type of kinsman redeemer that we're, we see in the law, right? But he also fits the perfect type of a kinsman redeemer that we see in Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus Christ is a type of kinsman redeemer, that he is a kinsman redeemer, right? Because when man sinned, who paid the penalty? Who has to pay the penalty for sin? Man, right? I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, it wouldn't make sense. I mean, like, if we have a fair judge, and we do, right? God's fair. Um, if your cat breaks, you know, your lamp at home, should you get punished for it? No, right? The cat should, right? Or, you know, if your sister does it, should you get punished for it? No, right? Your sister did it. The point being is that when man sinned, the punishment was for man, right? So then, how does God then take that punishment if he's not man, right? How does that happen? Well, what do we see in, you know, around Christmas time in, in the story of Mary? What does God do? Yeah, he becomes a man, right? Without a earthly father, but he has an earthly mother in Mary, right? And we see that Jesus becomes the son of man while he is also the son of God. It's an amazing thing. And he does that because he has to be a kinsman, right? An angel can't die for our sins. You know, an animal can't die for our sins. We saw that how that didn't work out in the Old Testament, right? And even that showed that it wasn't good enough and there had to be somebody who could fulfill that in being a man. You and I, we can die for our sins, right? That's about it, right? And we deserve it. So when Jesus died for our sins, he didn't deserve it, 
but he was also able to be that perfect sacrifice, be the propitiation, as well as defeating sin because he was perfect and because he was God, right? He, it was the perfect balance that he was man and he was God. He was holy man and holy God. So he becomes this kinsman redeemer. It's like a relative, right? That's what a kinsman is. So he related to us, not just in the things he went through, but the fact that he was also man, right? He was hungry, he was thirsty, he got tired, just like all of us. He went through everything that we went through, all the emotions, all the hurts, all the pains, all the sufferings that we go through as human beings, but without sin, right? He was the perfect kinsman redeemer. And so we're going to see hope in this because of what Boaz does, right? We're going to see hope in this because Boaz is a picture of Jesus. And you're going to see a lot of similarities as we go through this. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. And so just to pick up where we were just um, talking about, again, here just the author telling us, the narrator, let's say, right? Because as we read this, Naomi, or, uh, Ruth doesn't know this. Okay? And we have to understand that as we read through this. Ruth does not know that Boaz is related to Naomi. She does not know that he is the kinsman, redeemer within the family. Okay? She doesn't know that. And that is where it plays out to be like this beautiful, cheesy romance of a Hallmark movie. Right? Here's, here's the initial tragedy that sets up you know, the plot and the storyline. And then here's this you know, mighty man of valor in Boaz, who's the perfect guy, who's the right guy for Ruth. Ruth doesn't know, right? And, and she's honoring her, her uh, mother-in-law. And she goes out and she works her butt off. And it just so happens that she works in Boaz's field, right? And Boaz sees her and notices, you know, like she's an upstanding woman. She's honest. She's humble, right? And she's also working hard, you know, and he probably doesn't even see her beauty yet because she's been busting her butt in the field. She probably looks and stinks, like looks gross and stinks, right? But he sees beyond that, and he's not like, it's not all about what's on the outside. It's okay, like here's this godly woman, right? And it's like here we are watching this movie, us knowing that they're the perfect match and that they're going to end up together in the end, but they just don't know it yet, right? But here they're both doing what they're called to do in the Lord, Right? They're, they're both serving him. And what ends up happening as they do, that to, they do that separately at the same time is that they eventually end up together. Right? There was no trying to go out of our way to pursue someone. And now that may not be a, a, a bad thing or a wrong, thi- wrong thing, but not when it supersedes pursuing God first. Right? And so as they're pursuing God and they're, and they're just doing their normal duties, you know, serving, working, you know, providing. Ruth is trying to provide for herself and for her mother-in-law. And as she's being faithful to her mother-in-law, here comes this connection, right? Again, all by happenstance, right? No, God's ordaining this. You know, and I think you need to trust too that, that God one day will ordain your future marriage, right? Your future spouse. You know, that, that he will genuinely do that because he cares about you. But the most important thing is that you find the same characteristics and values that you see within Ruth and Boaz. The very first thing is what? That they both are, are being faithful to God, right? That's the main thing. I mean, Ruth just left everything that she ever knew 
to follow the God of Israel and Naomi, right? And Boaz, we're going to see, is an upstanding man. He's a, he's a mighty man of valor. You know, he's a man who, you know, yes, he has wealth and he has, you know, good character, um, but God is important to him. And we're going to see it that it even happens within his workplace, right, as he greets his workers and that his workers respect him because he's upstanding and he's right and he's fair, right? And he probably treats them really, really well. And so again, he says, the relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, that can be translated as well as a mighty man of valor. We see that as we study through Judges, there was a couple guys who were referred to as mighty men of valor. It's very sim- similar to our word uh, knight, right? Like, like a knight, a knight in shining armor. Again, the, the cheesy hallmark romance, right? Here's this guy who's going to come and sweep her off her feet and save her, right? But essentially, Boaz doesn't even do that because who's already doing that? God, right? She doesn't need Boaz. Do you know that? Because what does Boaz say to her? He says, the Lord repay your work and full reward by given, be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for a refuge, right? So who's the one that's already protecting and providing for, Nao, or for Ruth? It's God, right? It's God. Now, ladies, God does bless you with a husband, right, who can provide and protect, but at the end of the day, who's ultimately going to be doing that for us is the Lord, right? Is God. And so God's already, he's already taken that. I mean, that's, that's who he is. That's what we need him for. Boaz, his name means fleetness. Just thought I'd throw that in there. I don't know what it means, what, it, what purpose that is, but his name means fleetness. And I think what we're going to see too as we go through this is that there's a little bit of an age gap here um, between Ruth and uh, Boaz. I think Ruth is probably, and this is just a guess, and as we read through this and study this in context, we see even in, in chapter 3 and verse 10, um, that Boaz is, is somewhat surprised that Ruth is even interested in him because he's like, well, why aren't you pursuing the young men, right? And so I think Boaz is, I mean, I don't know. We could guess all day long, but I'm sure there's, a, there's an age gap here. I don't know, an age gap between uh, Boaz and Ruth. Boaz being older and Ruth being younger. And so again, the writer here is informing us that Naomi has a kinsman, Right? But Ruth does not know anything about this yet. Okay? And this kinsman is Boaz, who is of the clan of Elimelech, or the family of Elimelech. And every time that Boaz's name, or not every time, but about almost every time that Boaz's name is mentioned or comes up, this is mentioned, that he's a part of the family of Elimelech, that he is the kinsman redeemer. Right, Going back to the law that was presented to us in Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25, where the family members, if one died, and then it would take the other, right? That essentially, if there was a widow or an orphan, that they were to be, they were to be redeemed, right? So that shame, and if it didn't happen, there would be shame amongst the family. And so what we see in the midst of all this, guys, because this is so important, when we ended Judges chapter, what was it, 21? Judges chapter 21, what, what was happening? What was happening in the midst of, of Israel? Remember, it was absolutely chaotic how we ended Judges. Some of the craziest stuff we've, we've read in Scriptures. Some of the hardest things that we've read in Scriptures. And in verse 25, the very last verse of Judges, because it, this segues, Judges goes right into Ruth. In verse 1, it says, or verse 25, it says, There was no king in Israel 
What is it? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is what's happening, right? It, it, it's, it's almost in a sense, it's, there's lawlessness, that there's no respect and fear and honor and reverence for God anymore. But yet we see as we're reading through the book of Ruth that there's still one man, and that's Boaz, right? That Boaz, no matter what anyone else did, he would still do the right thing. And we're going to see this as we study through uh, the next three chapters. Again, that when everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, that there was still someone who cared about what God says. Guys, and we live in the same, I would say, pretty similar time now, where I'm sure many of you go to school or you have friends or acquaintances who do whatever the heck they want, right? And you, who I hope has some type of value and standards and morality, you know, you, there's a certain line that you don't cross. And I'm sure that you probably get made fun of, you get picked on, you get challenged, whatever it is. But hold your ground. Stay true to what is right. Do what is right in the eyes of God and not what's right in your eyes. Because you will be blessed beyond measure. I promise you that. And I'll, I'll, I'll even encourage you with this. You are not missing out on anything. Anything that your friends are doing that goes contrary to God's word is not, it's not better. Ask anyone who has gone that route and is now walking with the Lord, they'll tell you it was a waste of time. And not only a waste of time, but there's so much baggage. There's so much things that you have to deal with. It's not worth it. It's not good. It only brings bad things, right? And so you are blessed when you abstain from things. I don't think you understand that. You are so blessed. And it's not because, you know, you're a goody two-shoe or whatever names you get called. But do you, what did I say? two-shoe, right? Like, you, you, let me tell you this, too. People envy you. They envy you because they can't hold back from doing the things that they're doing. Trust me. So do what is right in, your, in, in, in God's eyes, right? That is what, what righteousness is. It's what's right in the eyes of God. Be righteous, Right? But don't be acting in rebellion and idolatry and being disobedient to the Lord because we're going to see here that Boaz, in this time of rebellion and sin, he's going to shine brightly. He's going to stand out and he's going to be blessed beyond measure. And so in verse 2, it says, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So to glean the idea is here to, to, it means to pick up, to gather up, right? To, to pick stuff up. And what's happening here in the time of harvest, this gleaning was picking up the leftovers that had fallen on the ground after the workers had already gone through, right? And what's really cool about this, guys, is that God always provides. And here he sets up a law and a command within the nation of Israel to help and provide for the widows, the orphans, the poor, the foreigners, that if they had no provision, they could provide for themselves. Well, how? Well, this is the law right here. In Deuteronomy 24, 19, it says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. 
So the idea is that there are leftovers, that there's stuff left behind so that people who cannot provide for themselves, right, you know, the fatherless, the widow, the stranger, speaking of the foreigner, right, they don't have somebody to provide for them. Well, they're going to be blessed by going behind and getting the things that are left behind, right? That's how God provides. But you know what's a really beautiful thing about this too? Is that it's not just like a free handout, right? Kind of like we live in, in in our time now in America where a lot of people just want a free handout without working. But God's not that way. He's like, I, I want you to be blessed. I want to provide for you. But to the best of your capability, you can do what you can do, right? So he doesn't just give a free handout, but they were allowed to go and to work and to pick up what was behind. And we're going to see this with Ruth, right? That she's going to come behind and she's going to work her butt off to get what she needs to provide for her and Naomi. And so again, this is a great way of helping the poor because it does two things. It challenges the farmers, it challenges the people who are reaping to have a generous heart, right? They're commanded and then, and then the poor are commanded to be active and work for their food, right? And we don't see this nowadays. And what happens is there's a lot of immorality that comes with that because there's something about working for what you earn and it's good, right? I know there's Proverbs probably all littered somewhere in Proverbs about that, some wisdom about that. I don't know anything off the top of my head, but it's good. And when we don't, there's a lot of chaos and a lot of bad things, a lot of entitlement, a lot of uh, pride, selfishness, a lot of bad things that come when we don't work for what we, what we earn. And so again here, it's commanded that the poor, they be active and work for their food, and it provides a way for them to produce their own digni, dignity in a sense. And Naomi says after this that she's going to go to a field and hopefully she finds favor in this man's sight. Whoever this man is, whoever's, whoever's field it is, she's hoping that she finds favor. What does this word favor mean? There's another word for it that we often use. Anybody know? It starts with a G. Grace. Thank you. Grace. It's, it's synonymous, right? Favor means grace. Grace, in a sense, means favor, right? But she's asking that she would find grace in his sight or favor in his sight. And so she's going to find that, right? She's going to find so much grace. There's so much grace littered through this because in a sense, she's a foreigner, right? She's a widow, right? She's a woman. Like here, she's like the, the trifecta. She's poor. And here she's going to find so much grace in the eyes of Boaz in receiving things that she does not deserve. And yet she's going to be abundantly blessed, Again, if you see that picture between Jesus and us, right? Here we are, the, the foreigner, right? We're the Gentiles, right? We are not, we are not part of the, the chosen nation of Israel, yet God has grafted us in, right? We, we have been outcasted. We've been exiled because of our sin, and we have nothing to offer God. And yet he's bestowed so much grace and favor upon us when we don't deserve it, right? Ruth didn't earn anything. We don't earn anything, there's so many similarities that happen, happen here. So Naomi, as she says, go my daughter, here she's leaving us on the edge of our seat as readers or watchers of this Hallmark movie, wondering if she's going to find favor, and obviously, more importantly, if she's going to find any type of food. And since we've read ahead, we already know this. Uh, but she's going to go somewhere. She didn't go anywhere. She's going to go wherever she can find 
grace to anyone that will help her and allow her to glean some crops. Ricky, are we out? Are they done? All right, verse 3. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Again, this is not happenstance. It's not a coincidence. This is God-ordained. I think we have to trust that and believe that, that in every, every step of our life that, that God directs, right? That, that God is sovereign over everything. It's interesting how this works because the Bible is clear to us and tells us that, you know, we do have free will, but God's also sovereign. So in some way, we have to believe that, yes, I, I, I make my choices, right? I, I go this way, but yet in the same sense, God is the one planning it. Right? That, that they don't contradict, that, that God is sovereign, God does plan, God is in control, but I still have my free will to, to choose and to decide. Right? I think a perfect example of that or a perfect explanation of that is Proverbs 16.9, which says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Right? You do you in the sense of which way you're going to go, but God will do his way as well. Right? He, he is the one producing things. He is the one doing this, and it's a beautiful thing. There's no such thing as think of as coincidences. I got a story for you really quick. There was four expecting fathers. They were in a hospital waiting room while their wives were in labor, and the nurse arrived and announced to the first man, congratulations, sir, you're the father of twins. He's like, what a coincidence. The man said with some obvious pride, I actually work for the Minnesota Twins baseball team. And the nurse returned a little while and turned to the second man, and she said, you, sir, are the father of triplets. Wow, that's really incredible. And what a coincidence, he answered. I work for 3M. My buddies will never let, this, uh, let me live this down. So an hour later, while the other two men were passing cigars around, the nurse came back, and this time she turned to the third man, who had been very quiet in the corner, and she announced that his, his wife had just given birth to quadruplets. Stunned, he barely could reply. Don't tell me another coincidence, asked the nurse. After finally regaining his composure, he said, I don't believe it, I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. After hearing this, everybody's attention turned to the fourth guy who had just fainted <laughs> flat out on the floor. The nurse rushed to his side, and after some time, he slowly gained consciousness, and when he was finally able to speak, you could hear him whispering the same phrase over and over again. He says, I should, not, should never have taken that job at 7-Up. Should never have taken that job at 7-Up. <laughs> There's no such thing as coincidences, right? God is, is working these things. And so in verse 4, we'll end here. It says, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. So Boaz shows up on the scene, right? Ruth is making her way to the field. Boaz is making his way to the field. And as he gets to the field, he, he, he greets his workers, right? And he greets them in, in such a, a wonderful way. He says, the Lord be with you. And they answer back, will the Lord bless you, right? A, a beautiful interaction. You can see the respect there. You can see that Boaz uh, esteems the Lord, not just in church, but on his job site, right, with his workers. J. Vernon McGee says this. He says, God was reverently recognized in the harvest field by both the owner and the laborers. This all transpired in the days of the judges when there was decline, decay, and uh, disintegration. The remainder of Israel might forget God and turn to idols, but there was one man 
who did not forget him, but remembered him in even the extension of a morning greeting. Again, it just shows us the character of Boaz. So he says, the Lord be with you. The character and the heart that Boaz has in regarding who God is, we see the, the love that his workers have for him, right? The rela- good relationship that his workers have with him. And I think you can tell the real character of a man who, being in authority, how he is seen, right? How he is seen by his workers, by his employees, by his staff, right? How they treat him and how they think of him, right? It reveals a lot about Boaz. And this is important to see because, again, Boaz is an upstanding man. He's a mighty man of valor, right? He's a man of strength. He's a man of wealth, right? But he's a man of God. And so as Boaz is a man of God, we're going to see Ruth be a man, or not a man, (laughs) a woman of God, right? She's going to be a woman of God. And the two are going to intertwine and they're going to connect and they're going to make the perfect couple, right? Why? Again, because they're both seeking the Lord, and they're both being faithful to the Lord, right? If a man or a woman can't be faithful to God, then we cannot expect them to be faithful to to one another, right? I mean, that is one of the most important things that we can find within a relationship. And so I want to encourage you guys with that, and to take this seriously, even though you may not be pursuing a marriage anytime soon, but it's something to think about and to be aware of. Right, Because I think it do, God does instill it in us as human beings to have that relationship with a spouse. Right? And for those that do not have a relationship with a spouse, it is a God-given gift. Okay? You are truly gifted. It's not a weird thing. It's not a bad thing. Right? But it's, it's, it's a spiritual gift that God gives us to be celibate. Right? And Paul says, man, I wish, I wish a lot of you were like me, that you could be this way because then you could be full force and 100% just following the Lord and doing the work of God because you don't have any other responsibilities. And they're not bad responsibilities. They're good responsibilities. We, we need the family unit. We need a husband and a wife who have children and are raised up in the Lord. Those are good things. That's how God ordained it. And when it's done this way, the society's good, the culture's good, the town's good, the community's good, and the church is good, Right? And obviously, there's many of us in this room who come from broken homes, and we see the repercussions of it, right? We know we felt the repercussions of it. Can God redeem it? A hundred percent. He has, he can, and he will if you allow him, but it doesn't mean that it's, it's not without its hard, hardship, 